head out of lockdown. Once again, some really good numbers coming out of the weekend. And, of course, this new security system, which uh, is going to allow a number of internationals to return to us here in Melbourne, is now in place. And we have full confidence in that. We have full confidence in our COVID-19 reporter as well, Piers Cunningham, who joins us on the line. A very good morning to you, Piers. Good morning, Brendan. Um, some interesting developments in the last 24 hours or so over the weekend. Uh, firstly, of course, the numbers continue, which is absolutely brilliant. Um, the other interesting thing is internationals now flying directly into Melbourne, which is also brilliant. Um, but there's been some stuff occurring in the news cycle, which you've been keeping a bit of an eye on, Piers. Yeah, the Wall Street Journal has come out with a report which suggests that there was some pre-existing immunity in Asian countries like Japan, South Korea, China, Vietnam, Taiwan, Malaysia and Singapore. So they, they, had, they seemed to have less deaths resulting from the virus. Well, they, they, they definitely did. And places like South Korea still had packed uh, public transport systems in Seoul, uh, subway systems also in Tokyo, but without seeing big outbreaks flowing from that, whereas similar situations that have happened in, in Western countries, in Europe and, and North America, for example, they've had very different um, effects that had super spreading and, and, and other, uh, you know, very, very adverse um, results from those kind of, of group, you know, high-density um, people getting together on public transport. So the question was, why why have those Asian countries uh, done better? And epidemiologists and, and, and people studying uh, this have, have have looked at it, and the, the results aren't absolutely conclusive at this stage, but the report in the World, Wall Street Journal is saying that there, there may have been some degree of immunity from earlier coronaviruses, colds. So these are just things that would have seemed like a common cold, but there are also other forms of coronavirus. And that these, these events over the years have given some protection against COVID-19. Uh, blood samples taken from before the pandemic show that uh, one in 20 adults sampled had antibodies and nearly half of children and adolescents had antibodies with a chance of death down by 70% if you had those antibodies. So the suggestion is that um, that even the, even the SARS epidemic of, of, of 2002 to 3 uh, may have given some some degree of, of immunity to people in that part of the world, and uh, it is curious that the, the 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 epidemic that we're now dealing with, the world's dealing with, the the COVID epidemic, uh, has its origins in China, as did SARS, and um, there may have been other infectious viruses like COVID on on many occasions, going back decades, perhaps even longer which have been unnoticed by, by scientists and by the medical fraternity, and that this has conferred some degree, degree of protection on those countries, not just in China, but uh, those other countries I mentioned, Japan, South Korea, Vietnam, Taiwan, Malaysia, Singapore. So why this regional variation? Not fully understood yet, but an interesting story. Interesting story as well, and I guess perhaps, you know, the tradition of mask wearing in those particular countries as well. And I have read elsewhere that their preparedness, given uh, the outbreaks of SARS back uh, a few years ago, put them in a better frame of mind and an ability to scramble national resources to throw it at COVID-19 and indeed better manage it in those first instances, thus preventing that uh, tragic second wave. 
Yeah, that's right. In particular, I think Taiwan's been cited for that. They were they were used to dealing with the need for a rapid lockdown. They'd experienced SARS, and as a as a close neighbour of China, they were they were pretty quick to act. And so they've kept their their situation in response to COVID in a, in, a, in a really good place. Interesting. So Southeast Asia seems to have some sort of fundamental immunity, according to this latest study. Not sure whether it's absolutely bona fide research yet, but nevertheless, some interesting conjecture and the study, I'm sure, and research will continue. Mm. Meantime, there's been some developments out of China in the last 24 hours or so. What's going on there, Piers? Well, there's a CNN report. It's, it's been echoed in the Australian uh, in recent times, the last 24 hours, of an article there which is saying that new disclosures from inside the Chinese health system uh, confirm that there was a bit of a cover-up early on uh, and that, uh, you know, the, the, the numbers were perhaps quite significantly understated. So back in February the 10th, China reported 2,478 cases when internal secret reports actually stated uh, nearly 6,000, 5,918 cases of what turned out to be COVID. Uh, the, the, the Centre for Disease Control in China set, reportedly set uh, quite rigid, restricted, top-down detection standards, which actually excluded real data from, from sort of making it out into the open. Uh, and... Um, the officials in China are reported to have denied the very high infection rates that were being noticed by doctors on the, at the coalface in Wuhan uh, and, um, and reports of hospitals being overwhelmed in January. Uh, those, uh, those reports were suppressed, according to CNN. So it doesn't come at a, at a good time uh, in, in um, the overall situation in relations with China. But also it does um, tend to let, lend, lend some support to Australia's uh, early calls for a, a comprehensive investigation. I believe there are Australian representatives who are accompanying international groups going to China right now to begin this process of investigating the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, they're bound to have quite close oversight and, and uh, the very suggestion that 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 body should be making that investigation has um, has been part of the reason that China's uh, and China's and Australia's relations are at an all-time low. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, Hubei province, of course, Wuhan is the capital of Hubei province in central China, and it was where local doctors and medical practitioners first raised the alarm. And indeed, one of those uh, very adamant uh, doctors, of course, eventually losing his life in that battle and certainly blew the whistle. But you can imagine then, as the PRC comes in and tries to control the situation, quote-unquote, and Xi Jinping being portrayed as the greater pandemic fighter, all of a sudden to have the temerity of Australia stand, standing up and saying, hey, we've got to investigate this, you can imagine that if they've been downplaying numbers and trying to tell a different narrative, there would be concerns about the Australian position here. No wonder they're kicking back on it. Well, exactly. And, and you wonder what, they, you know, what the real intention of it was. Was it to, to make the, the governing... Uh, party in China look good. In other words, we've, we've got disease under control in this country. Uh, and obviously, in, in later months, they, they did show that that was the case. They, they used very draconian measures. You know, there were stories about welding apartments shut, 
uh, dead bodies not being removed from apartments where those doors had been welded shut. Uh, there were stories uh, and, and openly distributed of, of you know, very draconian tracking measures. And if you, if you, you know, if you got checked out randomly to and found to have a temperature, then you, you found yourself uh, locked away pretty quickly, uh, possibly in an unsafe environment. Whether or not you were actually shown definitely to have COVID or not, that didn't seem to matter too much. So they did get on top of it, uh, and 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 their success is, is clear. If you look at the numbers for for a country like China, where it actually originated. Uh, they, they, uh, they've done very well compared with the rest of the world. But uh, as to exactly why they wanted to suppress those figures, uh, one can only assume it was to... It was the, the main target audience was, was the domestic uh, audience in China, uh, and, and there wasn't really that much regard for, for what happened in the rest of the world. But the two stories are interesting because uh, those, those low numbers in China may well have also been caused by that uh, pre-existing immunity from dealing with the likes of SARS in earlier years. Indeed. And the other interesting conspiracy theory as well that I think the Chinese and, and more uh, particularly some of the media in China is now seeming to get hold of is the fact that Wuhan was uh, the host nation for the World Military Games back in October. And uh, the story goes that uh, some malcontent and miscreant agents might have been part of that and perhaps contaminated China, thus being able to point the finger at China as the originator of the pandemic. Well, that, that's right. I think there, there's been claims that the Americans, uh, uh, soldier athletes who attended those games in China, uh, that they may have actually brought the disease in deliberately. Uh, there's also been claims, uh, there, there are reports that uh, cancer screening in Italy in September 2019, showed that the virus was already there, and this has been seized on uh, by China as proof that they didn't—they weren't the origin or the originator of COVID-19. However, those uh, those reports have been disputed by others. So it's going to be a game of, uh, you know, a game of, of who's got the, the best propaganda, who's going to use social media to distribute and, and uh, seed disinformation. We've talked about this in the past. Uh, unfortunately, this is, uh, this is sort of an information war now, in a way, that, that's, uh, that's happening, and there'll be reports and then there'll be counter-reports. But you would say that you would think that the epidemiologists will be able to trace the pathology of uh, the virus, however, and see its various mutations and be able to surely speculate with some confidence uh, where it might have originated. And that'll be that. You know, it'll be very interesting how much real access this group that's going with Australians included to go to, to, to Wuhan. That they they've recently arrived in Wuhan to investigate. But how much, you know, how much real deep uh, access they're given uh, remains to be seen. There, I think it's pretty clear that they'll be closely supervised by officials, and uh, they may not be able to draw certain conclusions about the exact origin based on epidemiology. We have to wait and see what the report is. I wonder whether it's China here sort of shooting itself in the foot because really we could all learn a great deal from what the Chinese experiences are. They could really uh, you know, set the bar here in terms of coping with uh, outbreaks of a pandemic like this and uh, perhaps be very instructive uh, for other nations to try and get their national health systems based on the Chinese model. I'm surprised that they're pushing back and not basically taking some sort of responsibility and saying, well, guys, yeah, it's unfortunate, but this is how we did it, and uh, here's some lessons to be learnt by everyone. Yeah, well, I think that they're, 
maybe they're embarrassed about what you know if these claims in the Australian by CNN are, are correct about uh, understating by, by more than half the number of early cases they had and suppressing uh, worldwide knowledge of what they had. So not just for the domestic situation, the domestic people in, in China, which was a risk in itself, but, but for the rest of the world. Uh, so that may be trying to cover up some mistakes that were made earlier, um, but also they have they did very well in, in managing it from there on, you know, by, by those what some would call very draconian measures, but using technology, using contact, you know, very very uh, strident contact tracing and, and isolation of anyone who was found to have found to be sick with anything. Really, they managed to, to, to stamp it out and contain it in in a way, you know, which which so many other countries, in particular the, the obvious the, the sort of elephant in the room is, is the United States that's, that's had such a terrible death toll, you know, 260,000 plus dead compared with, I think it's about, I haven't looked at the latest figures, I think it's about 85,000 in, in China. So a very stark difference in, in uh, death toll between those two countries, especially uh, if China was the originating place. And indeed, and China, of course, now getting back to business as well, open for business up there in the People's Republic and uh, their economy going absolute gangbusters, but uh, perhaps not with Australia trailing behind. Uh, that remains to be seen. Uh, Piers Cunningham, COVID-19 reporter for RPPFM. Piers, thank you very much indeed for your insights and your research. We are back on the air again with Open for Business, uh, 11 o'clock on Wednesday. Perhaps you'd like to join us just after the news then. That'd be a pleasure, Brendan. Good on you, Piers. Piers Cunningham, our COVID-19 reporter here on Open for Business, coming to you from the studios of RPPFM, made local at 26 minutes past the hour of... You're listening to Beyond Infinity. Let's move on because our COVID-19 reporter Piers Cunningham is on the line, been monitoring the situation across in Europe, around the world, bringing us up to speed on all things COVID. Piers, as we cross to you, yet another day of non-active cases here in the beautiful state of Victoria. 40 days we go, but meantime, just a little bit of hope on the horizon for our brothers and sisters in the UK. V-Day is here. Good morning, Piers. How are you? Morning, Brendan. I'm well, thank you. Yeah, it's it is good news, and it is being hailed as a as a milestone, the beginning of the rollout of, of vaccinations. It's starting with the Pfizer vaccination, which at this stage looks like being the most effective, reported to have 90% efficacy for those who are lucky enough to get it. They're starting with the elderly. Uh, in fact, they started with a woman by the a 90 year old by the name of Margaret Keenan. So she's going to go down the history books as the first to receive the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine at the University Hospital in Coventry, England. Uh, now, they are focusing on uh, the elderly, basically. You've got to be over 80 years old for the first 800,000 doses of the Pfizer vaccine going to those over 80 years old and to nursing home workers. Uh, but that is just the start of the biggest vaccination rollout in the history of the UK. Incredible. So uh, obviously, some yeah. Boris Johnson sounding a little relieved overnight. I thought he had just a little bit of a smile in his voice in the last 24 hours or so because a lot of pressure off him. Well, hopefully so. Uh, you know, it's interesting. The World Health Organization is actually still advising people. Uh, in the UK, and I think elsewhere as well, uh, they're, they're saying that 
Um, only public health measures can prevent a new surge of COVID-19 in the UK. Now, those public health measures are things like wearing masks, social distancing, hygiene and lockdowns. So, so it, it's kind of an, an immediate um, solution rather than the gradual solution, which is what the vaccine's going to do. Uh, and, 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 you know, it's really vital that the UK gets this right and it, it is fitting that they're, uh, you know, they've fast-tracked it and they're the first country to start this, you know, really comprehensive vaccine program because they are the worst hit in Europe. 61,000 are dead in the UK and more than 1.7 million cases. Incredible, isn't it? And also, of course, uh, the uh, Brexiteers and those uh, the Eurosceptics are very well. They're in a celebratory mood because they're claiming that uh, by leaving Europe or sort of going through the final negotiations about that means uh, that the European. Uh, collective uh, does not have a say on what they're doing. It means it's sort of freed up their public health system, allowing them to roll out this vaccine. They reckon that if they were still part of Europe, there would still be interminable uh, discussion about who, what, how and when, which, of course, the Europeans are still discussing. Yeah, and they can't even agree on their financial stimulus in response to the pandemic. There's countries, I think it's Poland and Hungary, are blocking the legislation through... European Parliament because there are some some fine print included which which says you know you've got to be upholding democratic values there's certain caveats to the the trillion plus multi trillion dollar stimulus pro program for the European Union so the POMs then sure. they're going they're going to Pfizer AstraZeneca of course is the local product had a few problems in that phase three testing looks like however its efficacy is probably in and around the seventy percent mark but the other big advantage uh, I think that they're talking about as far as AstraZeneca the British product is concerned is it only has to be refrigerated not delivered in special freezers at very very cool cool temperatures. Yeah, so that makes it much easier to roll it out in um, in the third world, for example, or in in warmer climates where you've uh, where you've got you know just high temperatures, you know, equatorial countries, and and the third world, which doesn't have necessarily the same network of hospitals with uh, good refrigeration systems. So it does make it harder. It's got to be actually very very cold. So it's not even this sort of normal food transport, refrigerated food transport or uh, containerised refrigeration. I don't even think that's good enough to move the Pfizer vaccine around. I think it's got to be really very, very cold, like minus 70 Celsius. So, uh, it, yeah, indeed, it does. Very, very difficult. So, again, looking at the, the British example, and I would imagine that to Greg Hunt, and I must say I think the Australian government's got to be congratulated in terms of the way they got on and was able to book uh, its access to some of these pharmaceuticals very on in the piece. They would be looking surely at the British model in terms of logistics, the rollout, and the, and the how they're going to deliver it here in Australia as well. Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, there is experience in both countries of rolling out uh, annual flu vaccinations. And in Australia, that's a very widespread and, and you know, a lot of people, you know, there's a very, very high percentage of the population has that flu jab these days. And this is going back pre-pandemic. And I think the same applies in the UK. Uh, so they should be able to you know, to benefit from that experience and how they've rolled out the flu vaccinations in previous years. Uh, Australia is more... Uh, we're, we've backed the Oxford vaccine, uh, the Oxford uh, AstraZeneca 
vaccine more than we have the, the Pfizer. So we've actually got more uh, doses eventually arriving of the the Oxford vaccine rather than the Pfizer one. At the moment, the Pfizer one is about 90% uh, efficacy, whereas uh, the latest on the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine is it's, it's only confirmed to have 70% at this stage, but that may maybe proved to be higher. They just been, they are being quite cautious. One benefit doesn't, as you said, it doesn't need that uh, that low temperature to be moved around. And the other difference is, of course, that the AstraZeneca has also now had and gone through its peer review as well, uh, which yeah. I don't think that the Pfizer has or it's just about to. So it's just a little further on down the road as well. As you said, they're certainly playing it very conservative. I don't think they want to overstate it. There's a lot at stake here. And if that uh, 70 number can be improved, I'm sure we'll hear about it. But nevertheless, giving uh, 70% of the population that uh, that possible immunisation against the vaccine is a great is a great fillip for all of us. Australia's got because our numbers, our numbers are so low. In Victoria, as you said, 40 consecutive days of, of zeros uh, with 11,578 tests conducted in the last 24 hours. That's quite a high, uh, high amount of testing still happening in Victoria. We've got the benefit of waiting and seeing how these vaccines pan out, how the delivery is hand, handled, how the, the, um, you know, the, the need for there to be fairness uh, in targeting the, the most needy uh, and uh, and I think it is it's great that the UK is, is setting an example by saying it's it's uh, it's people in nurse, workers for nursing homes and and people over the age of 80. And we know from the experience in Victoria over winter when it got into nursing homes in Melbourne that it was uh, definitely the elderly were, were um, you know very high. The, you know the vast percentage of, of people who were dying of, of this terrible disease were in their 80s and 90s. But I just wonder, you know, you get your inoculation, you get your AstraZeneca jab, so what does that mean? They suddenly unleash a whole group of plus 70-year-old Brits on uh, local villages and shopping centres? They're free to roam? They, or are they still going to be very mindful about uh, social distancing and health, you think? Well, I, look, I, I hope for their sake that they, they are because you want to make sure that these vaccines are working properly uh, and... I think that that seems to have been the, the lesson that a lot of the elderly have taken on board, whether there was a vaccine or not. But, and that's why, you know, last summer, the spread in Europe seemed to be among younger people rather than the elderly. And you have to assume that the elderly were, were choosing to stay indoors and stay isolated and continue doing the shopping online. I, I know of uh, plenty of elderly people in, in Melbourne who uh, seem to be continuing with their supermarket shopping online despite the fact that uh, you know masks aren't required outdoors anymore and, and the numbers that are allowed to gather in groups and visit houses and stuff have have changed I think there's still a fair amount of caution and I would assume that would that would be the case in the UK and and especially when there's uncertainty about whether you can you know does the, does the vaccine guarantee that you can't be reinfected or does it guarantee that the person who's been vaccinated can't they may they may not get severe symptoms of the disease, but they may still be able to pass it on. These are these are you know fine tuning uh, questions which go with any vaccination program. Which uh, in Australia we will have the benefit of of knowing how this pans out in the UK and and elsewhere where the vaccines are 
being rolled out now. Well, we're not too far away from the big rollout here in Australia as well. And as you say, I'm sure uh, Mr Hunt and his crew will be watching things very closely from the federal capital. Piers Cunningham, thank you very much indeed. Have a super weekend. <laughs> Well, the sun is out, the birds are chirping in the trees, we don't have COVID-19 and we are all still vertical. That is good news and particularly it's good news for us as we um, tap into the skills and the knowledge of our COVID-19 reporter Piers Cunningham who's standing by to update us on the very latest and Piers... Well, 2020 is a year to remember. COVID-19, of course, is etched very much in our brains, but uh, some of the virologists are already looking ahead to COVID-20 and maybe even 21. Good morning. Welcome once again to Open for Business. Morning, Brendan. Yeah, Bill Gates warned that we could face another pandemic between somewhere between three and 20 years from now. And there are people talking, people in the science community talking about us actually being in a, a, quote, new pandemic era. But, you know, it, it's, it's early to say that. There are, we, we are benefiting from vaccines that have been rolled out. Normally it would take 10 years to produce a vaccine or even longer. And we've been getting vaccines done in 11 months' time. They're a different type of, of vaccine. They're, they're using RNA technology which is apparently a breakthrough and it's, uh, it, it's a, a new form of vaccine and a new way to approach diseases in general and, and obviously COVID-19 in particular. So there are suggestions that this timeline, this accelerated timeline, will be able to be applied if there, are, if there was, as you suggested, a, a COVID-20 or 21. So, you know, this is, this is uh, potentially a, a good thing, that, that fast development uh, does give some hope, and this is uh, quoting from the director of the Wellcome Trust and a leading member of the UK's scientific advisory group uh, for emergencies, which is called SAGE. Uh, his name is Sir Jeremy Farrar, and he's saying that uh, technology advances may mean it is likely we can move to a future with vaccine platforms agnostic to pathogens. So without being specific to a disease, but with a backbone of long-standing safety data that can therefore change the 11 months took the COVID uh, to uh, around 100 days or less, which would be great news for a country like America, which in the last 24 hours has recorded over 243,000 new cases. It's extraordinary, isn't it, that they've been able to condense the amount of time that they've been able to roll this vaccine out in, as you're saying. Now, also on that same subject as well, because the Americans, of course, are also anticipating further troubles down the line. I mean, we don't want to visit this stuff on us, but given what we've learned worldwide, globally, in the last six months as well, so Professor Florian Kramer, he's at Mount Sinai in New York, he reckons that what they can do is they can create a sort of vaccine prototype that will just need to be tweaked to look at the various mutation of the virus as it comes through in ensuing months, years or decades. And again, the lead time, as the Brits are saying, probably nowhere near what has taken the six months to get this vaccine happening. And again, 100 days is looking like the magic figure going forward. Well, it might need to be that if viruses can, can mutate pretty quickly. Uh, we know that that's already happened with COVID. Uh, the suggestion is that it's become less deadly, but more infectious, so more easily spread between people, uh, but uh, actually less harmful. And we've, we've discussed this on the segment earlier.
in the virus's interest to keep its hosts alive rather than killing them off too quickly. Uh, so that's a change which would need to be responded to. So that 300, that, that 100 day mark or three months approximately uh, would be required to respond in a timely way. There is new technology on the horizon, and this is a you know the, the, the hope is that this is going to spearhead advantages and, and advances in dealing with all sorts of, of long-standing diseases which have afflicted humanity. Uh, you know, I mean, AIDS has been around for a long time, and and, uh, and that sadly hasn't been uh, that hasn't been dealt with. There's, there, there are quite effective treatments for it, but there's no actual vaccine. There's no cure. Uh, so it's possible that the response from scientists around the world to COVID may usher in a new era where we can deal with disease in, in, in a way that we haven't in the past. So, you know, that would be great if that's the case. Uh, I think that, you know, you look at those numbers in, in the Northern Hemisphere and it, it's horrifying and, and really we do need to be more prepared in future. So I think there's going to be a lot of a lot of pressure and a lot of interest in advancing this sort of stuff. But we also have new technology in the form of CRISPR-Cas9, which is a gene editing uh, technology. It's been around for a few years now, but that holds a lot of hope for, uh, for changing the way that we respond to diseases that have been around for a long time. And that literally allows us to cut and paste DNA uh, from potentially any organism. Uh, including the human genome. So, you know, there's, there's some controversy there. There are, there, there are bioethic concerns about how that technology is actually used. But, uh, again, it's, it's a new technology and it, it really is giving us a lot of control over that, you know, that, that microscopic and almost uh, molecular world that, uh, that exists and, and is needed to be understood and to be able to be interacted with to deal with the likes of COVID-19 or COVID-20 or COVID-21. Indeed. So RNA, obviously, this new technology is the breakthrough. So if there's a silver lining from all this, it is our understanding, as you say, of this new science, this new technology as well, and its interplay. And probably if uh, these scientists and virologists are to be believed, they'll have a background uh, serum or vaccine which will exist. It just needs to be tweaked. And they're even thinking, I think, if correct me if I'm wrong, Piers, that they might even sort of roll it out on a tweaked basis as part of your annual flu shot as well. So basically it would also include the body's ability to be able to withstand uh, the latest onslaughts of some of these uh, global pandemics as they hit our shores. Yeah, well, that would be great, wouldn't it? I mean, we, we, we're used to having flu shots. A lot of people uh, have them in Australia, and uh, they, they have been credited with keeping the number of fatalities from seasonal influenza down in this country. It seems to be a bit hit and miss. Sometimes they get it right. They, they base it on what's happened in the Northern Hemisphere during our summer, so they collect as much information about what we are likely to be afflicted with in Australia, in the Southern Hemisphere, at uh, winter, and uh, they put all that together. So, yes, indeed, if, if, if COVID-19 became a seasonal problem, then that could potentially be included in that flu jab. There's going to be a bit of resistance. There's, there seems to be quite a bit of resistance to taking vaccinations or to taking the COVID-19 vaccination. There is a big anti-vaxxer movement around the world and uh, there are people who are concerned about taking it before it's been fully tested. So we in Australia will we'll have the advantage of seeing how the vaccines, the various vaccines go in the Northern, Northern Hemisphere before potentially, uh, you know, being, being required or being asked to take them 
for our next winter in 2021. And that's important as well because obviously those vaccines been rolled out for a couple of days now in the UK and as you were saying, uh, the Americans are now just uh, locking and loading and rolling them out as we heard in the news at the top of the clock. So it looks like the Northern Hemisphere beginning to respond now. It's going to be very interesting to see how logistically and how efficiently those logistics do work over the next uh, few months days or so as they try and inoculate entire populations. going to be a real interesting, um, well, I'm going to be a keen observer of that particular process, Piers. Yeah, indeed. And, and it's quite, you know, logistically it's quite difficult because the Pfizer vaccine which seems to be the most effective at the moment, uh, despite its, uh, you know, some people in, in the UK, that early rollout there last, starting last week, they are, you know, some people are reporting if they've had allergies, that they're getting a, an adverse reaction. They've been warned to, to be careful of, of taking it, so they're directing it at the elderly and health workers. Um, but, but yeah, uh, there, there is certainly uh, a lot of hope around those those uh, those vaccine rollouts. But, but the logistics of it are difficult. It's got to be transported and stored at minus seventy degrees Celsius. Yeah, a lot of dry ice going to be used, I would suggest, over the next couple of months. Piers Cunningham, thank you very much indeed. Once again, very insightful, Piers. We're looking ahead to Wednesday, which is going to be our final edition of the big show. So uh, thank you very much indeed. Looking forward uh, for your final contribution when we uh, open for business on Wednesday next. The 16th is going to be our final show in this particular series. So, Piers, until then, keep well, keep safe, and enjoy the sunshine. Thanks very much, Brendan. I'll speak to you on Wednesday. Thank you very much indeed. Piers Cunningham, RPPFM Intrepid COVID-19 reporter on the line. You're listening to Beyond Infinity. and our buddies, a little bit of 911 emergency. I tell you what, uh, emergency certainly at there at emergency quarters over the USA. Those numbers still beginning to uh, really bother everyone. Indeed, uh, coronavirus deaths and also infections and the rates over there probably coming up a little bit in the last 24 hours, but still really terrifying numbers. Speaking of terrifying numbers and what is being observed, we've got uh, COVID reporter Piers Cunningham on the line, who I must say has been a, a stalwart of uh, lockdown radio and also open for business over the last few months as we've tried to chart and monitor the COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, Piers, for the final time in this particular manifestation, it's uh, a very good morning to you and thank you very much indeed for being there. But you bring some more worrying news. We've been hearing about it in the last few days coming out of Europe, in the UK in particular, uh, what should we be alarmed at? Scientists have been carrying out genetic analysis of the PCR test, the polymerase chain reaction, which is that gold standard test used in Australia as well. So the, uh, I think it's about 7,000 odd tests today. I can check that. But uh, the test that we do in Australia is also used in the UK. And the numbers that come back and the information that comes back is being analysed there they have been yeah, looking at these, these PCR tests and they've spotted a new mutation and the COVID-19 genomics consortium is suggesting that uh, there is a new mutation, which they are concerned about. Uh, it's been identified in over 1,000 cases, predominantly in the south of England, although cases have been identified in nearly 60 different local authority areas. And it's concerning because, one, it may prove to be more contagious, it may prove to be more harmful, so more deadly potentially, and it also may be a way that the virus can 
skip the effects of vaccines that are being rolled out. Listeners are probably aware the Pfizer vaccine was uh, first rolled out in the UK and uh, is continuing there uh, with a, a mass rollout, but starting with the most needy, elderly and, and uh, health workers, and then staggering down in sort of five-year increment, age group increments to the rest of the population. But it, it is a worry, and uh, you might cast your mind back to earlier this year, back in November, when Denmark culled its entire mink population of up to 17 million animals and, and built, built, built all these, uh, dug all these huge mass graves in the countryside over, over the weeks of, uh, of, of November to dispose of these animals safely. And that was because they detected a new variant of coronavirus. Now, this strain in, in, in Denmark is supposed to be different to the one in the UK that, that's just been found. But the one in Denmark, the reason for that, that very severe response with the, the mink population was because it was considered to be a very, a really worryingly, alarmingly dangerous strain, so potentially more deadly and uh, and more easily spread than, than what is already, we know, a very, very contagious disease. Well, Piers, we would expect, would we not, that a virus will mutate. And in fact, I think in its incarnation this time around, COVID-19 has gone through a few phases. I think earlier on the year, they were looking at an L-type. Then they were looking at an S-type variant of COVID-19 as well. S-type appeared, uh, and you, I think you brought our attention to this, because it appeared to be um, milder and less infectious. But now this new mutation has probably, as you say, got some serious and worrying consequences. It's hitting the southern parts of the UK, so around southeast Kent and those sorts of areas south of London. Um, it's obviously causing some concern. So they've got uh, quite harsh lockdowns, particularly in those areas, the southern parts of England, where this is most prevalent, where these 1,000 cases have been detected so far. But they're in 60 different locations, so it's quite widespread already. And uh, so, yeah, they've entered uh, an even more hardcore stage of lockdown in, in those affected areas. They're trying to be quite targeted about their lockdown lockdowns in the UK, as they are elsewhere in Europe. But uh, it, it is certainly a worry whether it uh, really is going to affect the, the, uh, the use and, and, and the effectiveness of vaccinations is being downplayed by scientists at the moment. Uh, they are saying that most mutations found so far have not proved more deadly uh, and uh, some variants actually prove to be less aggress aggressive and many die out. So the virus does lots of different things, as all viruses do. Mutation is just one of them. Uh, in November, scientists at, the, at uh, UCL published research showing that there has not been a mutation so far that has increased transmissibility. So that's slightly at odds with what we have talked about on the program. And again, there's a lot of there's so many different research organisations around the world studying. So much money has been thrown at this by governments desperate to get control of this pandemic because of the social and economic damage. Uh, so there, there is sort of some contradictory information about that. But uh, that UCL report uh, saying that uh, there's not been a mutation so far that has increased transmissibility. I thought that was interesting because we have reported earlier, as you just mentioned, that that uh, some earlier mutations this year seem to be to increase transmissibility but not the deadliness of the, of the, uh, the, the disease. 
But the worry, of course, is, I guess, for those uh, you know that are touting the vaccine and we're all hoping that it works. Now, mm-hmm. my understanding is that most of the vaccines are hitting the spike protein, uh, and it's the spike spike protein which latch, latches onto human cells at a molecular level. That's what's going on. Now, if that spike protein is being adjusted or is mutating, it means that the vaccines that are targeting it are no longer going to be effective. And essentially, the virus then gets away scot-free and does get into the human system. Yeah. And so it might wind up being a situation where the vaccines need to be tweaked. And we know with the seasonal flu and influenza vaccines that uh, we have in Australia every year, in about May, you're, you're, uh, people are asked to have them, and they were asked to have them May we've just experienced, 2020 May, because they didn't want a double whammy of, of influenza plus COVID being an even more sort of deadly combination for vulnerable people. Uh, but it, it may be that going forward, the the, uh, the virus may never be eradicated completely. It might be there because it might survive exactly by this process of mutation. And so the, the, the seasonal vaccine that we already get on an annual basis, a lot of people do anyway, for flu, for the for, for, for influenza, uh, that may it may be added to that. It might be that there's two, or it might be even combined into one. That, that so that vaccine includes COVID and includes whatever the most recent uh, variants of it are through mutation. So that that might be something that happens going forward with vaccines. Well, here in Victoria, of course, uh, you know, we're congratulating the state government, Dan Andrews, of course, who uh, really put his political backside on the line and held strong uh, alongside of Brett Sutton. But it's interesting to see that in this independent report about how we handle the second wave here in Victoria, the state health minister, Michael, or Martin Foley at least, suggesting that the pandemic is a 100-year event and therefore, to a degree, um, some elements and the response of the Victorian state government which was a little inadequate when compared to other states, can be forgiven under those circumstances, I think is what he's implying. But nevertheless, given the way that we are evolving and this virus is mutating, uh, given the fact that we had a SARS virus only about seven or eight years ago, now we've got COVID-19, perhaps Mr Foley is in a false sense of uh, confidence if he's predicting that we're going to have another one of these events in 100 years. My money is on something a lot sooner than that. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, and so is so is Bill Gates. who has been a, you know, there's conspiracy theories about him and so on. But um, he, he, he and his wife have got a a, a very well funded um, foundation, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, that's done a lot of work in Africa, uh, looking after people with malaria and trying to combat that disease over there, which ravages that continent, and done a lot and had a lot of success with that. He has said that uh, we are going to have another pandemic along the lines of coronavirus within, he said, between three and 20 years from now. Wow. And he was someone who forecast five years ago, there's a, there's a YouTube uh, video of him making a presentation that was really influenced by his work uh, in Africa and other develop, in the developing world with vaccines. Generally, um, he was saying that, that, that governments need to get ready for, to prepare for uh, a, a, a global pandemic. You know, that was based on his work in Africa, also uh, his his knowledge of history and, and, and probably study of the of the uh, the pandemic in 1918, and uh, and also uh, the the effect of SARS and the and the experience that we had um, early this century, about 2003, with SARS 
mainly up in North Asia. And it's been suggested that, that the, uh, there's been Japanese research recently saying that that may be a reason that exposure to SARS may have given populations in, in Asian countries some uh, extra resistance to COVID. Uh, so that's that's a suggestion. But, yeah, we I mean, there's even talk that we are now living in an era of, of pandemics, which is a pretty scary thought, but I think that the idea that this is, you know, we can, once we've dealt with this, we can relax for the next 100 years at least. I think that, as you suggested, that may be overly confident. Indeed. I certainly hope that Mr Foley and his friends aren't uh, going to sort of lock it away and say, well, wasn't that great? We dealt with it in 2020. Thank you very much indeed. See you another 100. Because quite frankly, Piers, I'm with you and I'm with Bill Gates. I reckon uh, COVID uh, 2021 ain't too far away at all. Piers Cunningham, it's been fantastic. Thank you very much indeed for your contribution to firstly Lockdown Radio and more recently Open for Business. We've really enjoyed your contributions to the program over these last few months. It's been most insightful and absolutely fantastic. Piers, we welcome you back to the airways early in the new year here in RPPFM. Have a good break, have a great Christmas and uh, stay safe. And thank you so much indeed for your uh, very insightful reports. Very much, Brendan. It's been a pleasure to be part of the program. Been a very interesting three or four months, hasn't it, to, to go through that lockdown period, talking regularly on Audible PFM, and now in the open for business phase. Let's hope that people are a little bit careful over over this silly season that we're approaching, and keep those high numbers of tests because even though we've got low numbers, uh, 47 days or something, wasn't it? Uh, really very encouraging. We, uh, we still need to be a bit cautious. There are new arrivals coming in who have COVID in quarantine, so let's hope there's no more leakage. Yeah, indeed, seven internationals, nothing uh, community-wise at least transmitted. So, yeah, seven internationals at the moment, but nothing community-wise for the last 47 days. Awesome stuff. Piers, thank you so much indeed. Catch up soon. You're listening to Beyond Infinity. Thanks for listening. Remember to visit our program website, beyondinfinity.com.au, where you'll find our complete back catalogue of over 600 podcasts. That's beyondinfinity.com.au.